0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you'll uh, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter eleven, Romans uh, chapter eleven, we'll be reading verses one through ten. This is a living and abiding word of God. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord They've killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to election, according to grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it had not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. So, God made a covenant with the nation Israel. And that covenant, you could think of it this way hundreds of commands. But all of those commands get boiled down to this. The covenant required them to love and to worship God with all of their heart and to love their neighbor as themselves. Under the terms of that covenant, God would be their king. They would love him. They would serve him and they would actually serve one another as brothers and sisters. But Israel rejected God as their king. First Samuel chapter eight and verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. This is when they asked for a king In all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In that rejection of God as king over them, they violated the first covenant requirement of loving God. And how did they violate that first covenant requirement? They violated it by worshiping idols. uh, 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 idolatry is spiritual adultery spiritual whoredom it is covenant infidelity and so they broke the first table of the law by worshiping and serving other gods they violated the second great commandment of the law by committing acts of injustice exploiting the poor, taking advantage of the widow and the orphan and the stranger. And instead of being a just society, they devoured their neighbors for personal gain. And so the nation violates the covenant by violating the two great commands or requirements of the covenant. And this is the message that you see in the Old Testament repeatedly. And so Jeremiah, for instance, just as an example, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 19, Hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon this people the fruit of their devices, because they have paid no attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. And so what does God do as the people are violating the first great commandment and the second great commandment? What does God do as the people are violating the covenant again and again and again? God sends them prophets. This is why we we call, we don't have time to develop this, go to Zambia next time I teach Old Testament prophets and you can hear all about it. This is why the prophets were called covenant enforcers or covenant prosecutors. They actually were, were, were sent by God to prosecute the nation according to the terms of the covenant, calling them to repentance threatening them with judgment if they refuse and disobey or, or continue to rebel or promises of restoration and salvation if they should repent. And so both Israel and Judah, both the northern and southern kingdoms, Reject the message of the prophets again and again. And in fact, one of the last passages in 2 Chronicles, by the way, 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew canon. The last book in Hebrew Bible is not Malachi. The last book is Second Chronicles. And it is actually, there, there's a, by the way, there's a whole story to the, to the order of Hebrew canon that, that our canonical order completely misses. But anyway, you get to the end of 2 Chronicles and God actually says for about the sixth time why he sent them prophets he sent them prophets because of their sin because of their idolatry he sent them prophets to call them to return to the god of the covenant and the summarization was this you have rejected god you have violated his covenant and i we therefore call you on god's behalf to repent and we call you back to covenant fidelity And so God sends these prophets, a multitude of them, to bring Israel back to the Lord. They testify against Israel, and yet Israel and Judah would pay no attention to the message of the prophets, and they not only reject the prophets, oftentimes they kill the prophets. That rejection of the prophetic message ends up reaching its climax with the Son of God. You remember the parable of the vineyard owner, and so those that are sent to those that were leasing the vineyard actually um, uh, represent the prophets. And so, as they as they reject and abuse those messengers, then the vineyard owner says, "I will send my Son." Surely they'll respect him. And so the father not only sends a, a, a string of prophets to call Israel to repentance, they, he finally sends his son. And this is what the, is the climax of Israel's rejection. Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That text Psalm 118 and 22 is quoted repeatedly in the Gospels and in Acts and in the Epistles to summarize and underscore Israel's rejection of her Messiah. And so here's Peter preaching in Acts chapter 4, and he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders and it has now become the corner stone and so Israel's history with God and his covenant is one of repeated rejection culminating in the rejection of her very own Messiah. What is God's history with Israel and her rejection? Let me just read a few texts to you. And all of this is vitally important for Romans chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 20 so this is the destruction of the northern kingdom for their apostasy and listen to these words and the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Psalm 78 in verse 59, which is a recounting of Israel's history. When God heard, he was full of wrath and utterly rejected Israel. Psalm 89 in verse 38, a psalm that celebrates none other than the the promise made to David. The Davidic covenant says, but now you've cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. And so the latter prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the the 12 speak the same message. It It is a message that is an oracle or oracles of judgment and rejection of the nation. But here's the glorious thing. Although Israel's history had been marked by consistent perpetual rejection of Yahweh as king, and God rightfully could say, I'm suing you, I'm giving you a writ of divorce, I'm rejecting you, I'm casting you off, I'm judging you, that message was never God's final answer. Well, I'm about to read to you, I could multiply 15 to 20 fold. And so just as an example in Hosea, Hosea 9, 17, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They will be wanderers among the nations. That's the word of judgment in Hosea 9, 17. And that is, I'm going to reject them. They haven't listened to me. They're going to be wanderers among the nations. They're going to be exiles. But that is not the end of the story. We're going to see the same thing this afternoon in the prophet Zephaniah. Message of judgment, message of judgment, rightly deserved. But it's never the final word. And so you get to the end of Hosea and you know the very God who says, I'll reject them because they haven't listened to me is the God who says this. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like grain. They will blossom like their vine and their Fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Notice God doesn't promise all of those blessings of restoration and salvation to a people who have already repented of their apostasy. Did you catch that key phrase? I will heal their apostasy. This is, this is the message again and again is that God in his grace always takes the initiative with a wayward, rebellious people. And I want to just, so let's just cut to the chase and get to the application before we get to the exposition. That's the best news in the world for people like us. Is that God's last word is not a word of judgment. His last word is a word of grace. Grace. It's a word of restoration, it's a word of healing, it is a word of salvation. That's our God. And so if you're here this morning, and you, you not only feel like a total spiritual loser, but you know beyond all doubts that you're a total spiritual loser, you know that you're a rebel, you know that you're sitting in your sin, I want to just say to you today, God Almighty, through His Son, Jesus Christ, can heal you of your rebellion and your apostasy. We should just stop there, but I I can't, so. (laughs) All right, chapter 11 and verse one. So when Paul begins Romans 11, he has this entire Old Testament history in mind. He He has in mind Israel's rejection of Christ, Israel's rejection of the gospel, Israel's rebuff of a God who has his hands stretched out to them in longing and pleading all day long. And so it is in light of of that history leading right up to the very end of chapter 10 that Paul's first question is the most natural question. God has not rejected his people, has he? Now, this shouldn't need to be said, but I just, well, I need to say it. So I guess it needs to be said The phrase, his people, clearly in both the immediate and the larger context, Paul is speaking about ethnic Israel or ethnic Jews. If if Paul's not talking specifically about ethnic Jewish people, his, his whole argument falls apart. If Paul is not talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh, then his whole argument ends up being meaningless. So the question goes like this. God has not rejected his people, has he? Now, I don't know if the ESV does has he or not, um no, is it just a question? okay, Reason number seven hundred and fourteen to switch when when the New American standard says, The Lord has not rejected his people has He the New American standard is doing something to help us understand, although it 's not altogether clear. I have to say, and that is there's a way to a- ask a question in Greek where you ev- where you expect either positive answer or a negative answer. In other words, there's a way to ask the question that you can anticipate either a yes or a no. And so Paul frames the question that requires a no answer, which is why the NAS says, has he, right? The, The implied answer is no, he hasn't. And so, what Paul is saying is, has God repudiated? Has God rejected? Has God cast off his people? Has he done that? Implied answer no. But Paul not only asks the question in a way that he anticipates a no, he turns around and then explicitly answers his own question. So you have to understand you gotta see the beauty of the grammar here, right? I mean, those of you who are growing in grace and sanctification are growing in the appreciation of grammar. Okay. Paul not only asks the question with an implied no he has not he turns around and answers the question with his famous common and yet absolutely emphatic may it never be has god rejected his people who uh, no may it never be those of you who 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 Who've heard this before, me genoita is Paul's little phrase that is expressing the strongest sense of denial. By the way, it's the same thing that he uses in shall we we continue in sin so that grace may abound. May it never be. Absolutely not. So has God uh, forsaken, abandoned, rejected, repudiated his people? The answer is no. And then the second answer is absolutely not. Now, here's the important part. What Paul's going to do is he's going to give two explanations as to why God has not rejected his people. And so what I, what I want to point out is that the argument that starts here with Paul's answer is often overlooked in terms of how vital this is to the answer. In other words, we, we get this question, has God uh, rejected his people? no. Absolutely not. And then we jump to the answer being, because of course there's a future for Israel. And what I want to say is that's not how Paul starts the argument. It's not Paul's point at this point. It will be Paul's point at a later point, which I will point out to you. But right now, he gives an answer, and here's the answer. For, because, here's the answer, I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And so, here's why Paul can say God's not rejected his people, because he says, hey, I'm an Israelite, right? I'm exhibit A as to why God has not forsaken his people. If God had forsaken his people, rejected all of his people, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be the apostle to the Gentiles. I wouldn't be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so here's Paul's answer. Of course God hasn't rejected his people. Why? Because I'm an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And so when Paul says, I am the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin, both of those designations underscore, as it were, the, the ethnic relationship that Paul has to the chosen nation Israel. So when he says, I am the seed or offspring of Abraham, he's saying, I have Abraham's blood flowing in me. I've got Abraham's DNA I'm a descendant of our father, Abraham. But then he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. It's kind of funny, because commentators will try to scour for reasons as to why he throws in tribe of Benjamin. And all I want to say is that, for one simple reason, is it underscores again that Paul's an Israelite. So if I said to you, I am by birth a Californian, okay, which is true. I am a fifth-generation Californian, okay? By the way, that's unusual, okay? That's very unusual. If I said, I'm a Californian, and then I said, okay, born in Marysville, Raised in Sacramento. I'm not making any sort of special comment about Marysville for one fundamental reason. There's really nothing special you could say about Marysville. Amen, Eric. <laughs> okay. Oh, Marysville, hmm. That's like Nazareth, all right? Do I say raised in Sacramento? I'm not all I'm doing is underscoring the fact that I really am a Californian. All right? Now, I'm a Nevadan now, so I'm a part of the, the new people of God. <laughs> <Yeah>. Now, <laughs> don't take that too far. So then, what Paul does then is he says, I'm exhibit A, right? So God's not abandoned his people because look at me. He hasn't abandoned me, he's actually saved me by his grace. And then Paul, so for good measure, then states in, in, in verse two, the statement now, but he states it positively and emphatically. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so when he says whom he foreknew, foreknown is the antithesis of rejected. Uh, whom he foreknew is a reference to, to Israel's corporate elect status. Amos three two. You only I have I known, speaking to Israel, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. And so Paul's statement, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, actually comes to us from two different Old Testament texts. The first is Psalm ninety four fourteen, for the Lord will not abandon his people nor forsake his inheritance. And 1 Samuel 12, which is absolutely crucial, for the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Why is that First Samuel passage so important? Because Israel has just asked for a king like the nations. And God says to Samuel, as I read earlier, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. And so Samuel goes to interceding on behalf of, of the nation whom he knows that is, be perfectly just for God just to wipe them out like he could have done a dozen times before and 15 dozen times after. And here's what God says. I'm not going to abandon my people on account of my great name. There's a sense in which what God is saying is, I'm not going to abandon this people who has just abandoned me. I'm not going to reject this people who's just rejected me because, and here's the reason not because they're so cuddly, cute, sweet, and smart, but rather, I'm not going to do it because of my great name. I'm not going to do it because of my glory. I've made a commitment to them, I've made a covenant with them. What is at stake ultimately is my faithfulness. And so since God's glory is uppermost in his own affections, God says, I'm not going to abandon you, but I'm not going to abandon you because of my great name, not because of your great name, because your name stinks. All right. So what's important in verse 1 and verse 2a is to see that what Paul's doing is he's making an argument. God has not rejected his people. He's making that argument on the basis of an elect remnant. Okay? Now, the argument of Romans 11 is similar to the argument of Romans 9 in that there's an election according to grace, and God has an elect remnant. Not all of Israel is from Israel, Nine six, right? But Paul's not just repeating the same argument from Romans 9. Rather, what Paul's doing is he's doing something a little different. The salvation of the elect remnant, which is according to grace, is actually now evidence of the preservation not only of that elect remnant, but it is evidence that God is not done with His ethnic people. All right? So, so that's that's the difference. So both of them say there is a sovereign election according to grace, and there is there is a remnant that God has for Himself, and that is absolutely true. You can trace it from um, uh, through through the children of Isaac and through the children of Jacob. It's the children of promise, not children of flesh, so forth. And so that's his argument in 9. When he gets to 11, he says the same thing in a sense. There's still that election according to grace, but here it is. That election according to grace is of that remnant, and the preservation of that remnant is, is evidence that God is not done with his people. Okay? Now, Paul gives a second answer. I love this answer. It's an answer that's illustrated historically from Elijah's day. Second part of verse 2 and verse 3. Paul says, or do you not know in the section about Elijah? Right? So Paul is going to go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, where Elijah, and this is Paul's language, makes earnest appeal to God against Israel, okay? So Elijah 18, or Elijah 18, try to find that in your Bible. 1 <laughs> Kings chapter 18 is this classic showdown, okay? Vic and Bertie and I have stood at Mount Carmel and they have, a, they have this, statue of Elijah holding a sword over his head with one of the prophets of Baal under his feet. Awesome. (laughs) Got this great showdown. Got the prophets of Baal and then you've got Elijah, right? The true prophet of Yahweh. And so the people are doing what? They are going back and forth. They're limping or halting between two opinions. Who's God? Is Baal God or is Yahweh God? And so you'll remember, it's actually a hilarious passage. If you have have even just a half an ounce of a sense of humor, you have to at least crack a grin. Prophets of Baal set up their altar it's the God who answers by fire that's going to be the, the, the true God. And so the prophets of Baal set up their altars, set up their sacrifice, put the wood out, and they, they dance and they shout all day long. Nothing happens. And Elijah, sitting there in his lawn chair, maybe you guys need to yell a little louder. Maybe he can't hear you. So they scream all the louder, shout all the louder. Then they, then they end up resorting to cutting themselves. Um, I, I guess to show Baal how serious they were and how much they wanted him to answer by fire. And then, and then Elijah says, well, you know, maybe, um, maybe he's on a journey and he he just left for the day, or maybe he's in the restroom. All day, the prophets of Baal, nothing. Israel's all gathered at Mount Carmel. And then it's Elijah's turn. You remember what happens? He has, the, he has them rebuild the altar because it's all in shambles because they've been jumping up and down on it and hollering and shouting. And, and uh, church always gets messy when you have those kinds of services. And so <laughs> he says, rebuild that altar and now just drench it. With water. Fill the trench with water, drench the wood with water, drench the sacrifices with water, and then Elijah calls on the name of Yahweh, the true God, and God answers by fire. Could you imagine being there? That would have been absolutely awesome, right? I mean, here, here. I mean, it was like no problem. He just, Elijah asked once, God answers. There's the prophets of Baal, all beat up, sweaty and bleeding. And they're like, you've got to be kidding me, right? And so, so you would think that at that point, you would think that what would happen is because God answered by fire, all of Israel would actually turn around and bow the knee to Yahweh, the true God, but it doesn't happen that way. By the way, miracle signs and wonders never can change a heart. And Israel continues in her apostasy, continues in her baal worship, and then Jezebel hears, "Oh, by the way, all of your prophets who've graduated from your special seminary there in reading, they're all dead." <laughs> and Elijah sits there in chapter 19. Depressed. The depressed, dejected prophet who just saw God answer by fire. And so then Elijah starts to do what all depressed prophets do he starts to whine. Lord, they've broken down your altars. They've killed your prophets. Now they're after me. And there's a problem. Because I'm the only one that's left. I'm the only one who's left. And the divine answer is, Elijah don't flatter yourself. <laughs> I still have 7,000. Now, is 7,000 a lot? No not in terms of the overall scope of the nation, 7,000. I still have 7,000. I still have a remnant, Elijah, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 of them, Elijah, and I know who they are, I know where they are, and I know their loyalty to me. So what's the point? The point is actually really simple, Just as there was a remnant in Elijah's day, so there is a remnant in Paul's day. This is is the the correlation that that Paul is making. And so to be sure, the, the, the majority of Israel during the time of the prophets... We're in apostasy. But Paul's point is, even during the time of Elijah, when it was the lowest of lows, there was a remnant. A small remnant, but a remnant known by God nonetheless. And so again, you understand. So last week when I was doing this, right? So there has always been a remnant. There is a remnant still. And it is that the presence of that remnant right now that indicates that God's promises are going to be fulfilled in an even more dramatic way in the future. So Paul's point is profound. Has God rejected his people? You you better believe he has not. Exhibit A, I'm an Israelite. Exhibit B, go back to the time of Elijah. God has always had an elect and faithful remnant. Now, verses 5 and 6. Yes, you're witnessing a miracle. Six verses in one sermon. What Paul does in verses 5 and 6 is he draws the analogy. You see it in the language when he says, in the same way then. There has also come to be, here's the key phrase, at the present time, a remnant according to election of grace. Now, The key phrase really is, in a sense, in the present time. That's Paul's focus. This is the answer, as I've said, to the question. But notice Paul does something else here. He alluded to it when he says he has not rejected his people whom he's foreknown, has he? Right? Or just that declaration. Whom he's foreknown. But now what he does in 5 and 6... Is he makes all of those who cling to the natural theology of the sons of Adam profoundly uncomfortable. What is the natural theology of the sons of Adam? Well, here it is I work, God saves. You know, you're born in the world thinking like that? I work, and then God responds to that work, and He responds to that work by being nice to me. In other words, put it in theological terms, we're all born either as Pelagians, or semi Pelagians, or rank Arminians. That's how we're born. And if you didn't know that about yourself, you can look up, our, uh, can look up Pelagius on Wikipedia. Okay? Now, why is Paul making this point right now? When Elijah says to God, I alone, I alone am left. there's a do you not detect at least just a small air of self-righteousness it's like peter all these other dirt bags may deny you but i never will right sort of an elevated view of of, of self, right? So I'm the only one that's left. And you know, as, as, as Christians, we can start to think, you know what? The whole world is going to hell in a handbasket, and uh, things are really bad, and um, it's like me and my little group, we're the only ones that are left. Or you could, you could think about that in terms of, like, church, right? All the churches are terrible, except mine. Right? Start to think like that. Paul is not going to let us think like that. And so Paul, what he does is he underscores this truth of grace and grace alone. And so this is, this is the way he put it. But if it, that is election, is by grace, it is no longer by works. Now, when he says no longer, just a little grammatical point here, it's not as if he's saying, it used to be by works, but not anymore. No longer is a logical inference, not a temporal inference. And so Paul says, so if election is by grace, then it is not by works. So that remnant that is left at the present time, is, an, is a remnant that, is, that exists purely because of an election according to grace. And then Paul puts the nail in the coffin. It's no longer by works, since grace would then no longer be grace. What a statement. Do you understand what Paul's saying? And that is, if, 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 if you are we'll just speak generically if you are among God's elect okay. if you are among God's chosen people you are among God's chosen people not because of anything in you but because of grace that is in God God didn't choose you because you first chose him if he was waiting for you to choose him, he'd still be waiting. God did not choose you because you had you you helped three old ladies across the street. God did not choose you because you put money in the offering box. God did not choose you because you saved yourself until marriage. God did not choose you because you homeschool and bake bread. God did not choose you because you take your vitamins and use essential oils. God did not choose you for anything in you. So get this straight. You look inside. What do you see? sin and darkness and death that's it daniel preached it last sunday it's glorious here here is our state dead God acts, God moves, God intervenes, and he does so solely and completely by his own grace. It is not a grace that you cooperate with. It is a grace that grabs you and raises you up from the dead. Oh, that people would understand this. And so when Paul says, So th- if it's by works, grace is no longer grace, you have to understand that means it's not of your free will, it is not of your good works, it's not of your good looks, it is nothing to do with you. All 110% grace and grace alone. So if you know God and you're saved by the blood of Jesus, you know God and you're saved by the blood of Jesus because God in his grace in eternity past chose you and God in his grace in time drew you and God in his grace, God in his time opened your eyes by his grace and drew you sweetly and irresistibly to the Lord Jesus Christ. The purity of grace is that it depends wholly on God and not man. Oh, I'm out of time. In this present time, I'm out of time. So there's a remnant, here's Paul's point, there's a remnant of believing Israelites because of grace alone. God's always had a remnant. In the days of apostate Israel, during the time of Moses, during the time of the prophets from Samuel to the very last prophet of Israel, Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, there has always been an Israel within Israel. God continued to have a remnant after he sent Messiah and after Messiah was rejected. And so, has God rejected his people? No. He's always had a remnant and he continues to have a remnant. And the very presence of that remnant is a promise of a greater harvest. And so, is this important for us? Or do you just go, well, that's great for the Jews. Everything to do with us. Did you live your Christian life this week? So consistently, so beautifully, so powerfully, so righteously, so uprightly, that God says, "Ah, there's no way I could reject him. you laugh. You know why? Because we know better. Did we live our Christian life this week in a way that if God... Listen to these words. Did we live our Christian life this week in a way that if God were to forget Christ, we would be rejected? Absolutely. Absolutely. Lose your temper with the kids? Not anybody in this room. Have little flares of unbelief? Commit acts of sin in word or thought or deed? Or was your faith of such a high caliber that God says, I am so happy you're on my team? What God says about his elect remnant is something that we have to take to heart. And here it is, grace and grace alone is the only kind of grace we need. His people, who are truly His people, have been chosen by grace before the foundations of the world. His people, who are truly His people, have been called by that grace in time. And his people, who are truly his people, are kept by that grace all the way to the end until they take their last breath and wake up in the land of the living it is that grace that keeps you it is that grace that sustains you if you lay your head down on your pillow tonight and you are not forsaken it is not because you're an all star on God's team it is because of grace and grace alone if you lay down on your deathbed and you're able to say I love thee in life and I love thee in death and I'll love thee as long as thou lendest me breath and say when the death dew lights cold on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. If you're able to say that when you're dying, it is by grace and grace alone. And so you want to know why, child of God, you'll never be rejected? You want to know why? Here it is. is because there was one who was rejected in your place. There was one who endured the rejection that we deserved. There was one who was forsaken of God, stricken and smitten. There was one who had our iniquities laid on him and by his stripes, we are healed of sin and misery forever. And so child of God, here is your hope. Here is your strength. Here is your footstool. Here is your your resting place. Here is your joy and happiness. Because Jesus Christ was rejected by the Father in my place because of my sins. I will never be rejected by God because I'm in Christ. Some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. And I pray that God would grab you by your throat. Don't buy this God is a gentleman nonsense. He doesn't knock and wait for you to answer the door. He's like a, he's like a parole officer who's coming in and he's going to kick the door down because you're, you're in trouble. And God comes... And if you don't know Christ, it is my prayer that God the Holy Spirit would convict you of your sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin and that in your sin you would feel helpless and undone. Completely unable to save yourself or to even do anything. And you just cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then all of a sudden the promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved becomes life to you. For those of you who know what I'm talking about. Here's the application. Be super happy about it. If you're a Christian and you look like you just your dog just died, you got a problem. Your Savior lives. God's grace surrounds you. Your sins are forgiven. Your name's written in heaven. You are the elect of God, chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And some of you look, walk around looking all dour and sourpuss. And I just want to tell you, there is nothing sanctified about looking like the end of the world is about to happen. The sanctified heart that's glad in the saving work of God rejoices and is glad. Let's pray. Our great God, how we thank you for matchless grace, unrivaled grace, sovereign grace, and how we thank you that you don't reject your people. We pray for those who are without Christ and without hope. May today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.